Thank you for joining us here at First Baptist Church of San Antonio, whether online or on broadcast, in your homes or wherever you may be. We want you to know that you are more than welcome to be a part of the life of this church, and we want you to know that we want you to meet Jesus today. In order for this to happen regularly, we need your support, we need your prayers, and we need your financial gifts. Please continue to give and be a part of what we do today. Well, good morning and happy Easter, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that, Ethan. Thank you. Uh, my name is Danny. I'm one of the pastors here at First Baptist Church and super delighted that we get to make much of Jesus, especially on a day that we call Easter, which calls us to remember his victory over sin and death. So if you are family, visiting your family um, today, thank you so much for worshiping with us. Um, if you are brand new, this is your first time in Lagos and 4th Street Crossing, we're so delighted that you're with us too. Um, I, I want to say just right from the beginning, there are some major goals that we have every time we gather for worship, but particularly on Sunday. Um, the first is if, if you are a follower of Jesus, um, especially Easter, I, I don't know where you are in your journey with, with Christ, but especially Easter, we want to be that clamoring, beautiful reminder that Jesus is our greatest purpose in all of life, that there is no one like Jesus. And my aim, our aim is to bring him into few where he absolutely should be all the time. But if you don't know Christ, if you don't know fellowship with God through Jesus, if you don't know forgiveness of sin and restoration and reconciliation with God, our aim is for you to see and know Jesus clearly today so that you can say yes he is my king. We want to lead you to faith by the power of God's spirit in a brand new dynamic way today. That's what we want to see happen. We want to lift Jesus up. That's the promise of Jesus to us that if we exalt him, he would draw all people to himself. And we believe that. 
we believe that. And we're gonna do that, interestingly enough, through Job. Like, how in the world do you talk about Easter and Job? Well, God knew exactly what he was doing when he inspired that writer to put together the story of Job and the conversations that he was having with his friends for Job to land on something as bizarre and crazy as the resurrection of the dead, but he did, and that's where we're going today in Job chapter 14. So I'm gonna pray, and then I'm going to ask you just to receive God's word this morning. I'm gonna read all of Job 14. So if you need to close your eyes and use your imagination and pretend that you're receiving these words afresh and anew from Job, like you're in the same room with him, keep your eyes open. Whatever you need to do to really listen to God's word, I want you to do. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you speak to us. You've revealed yourself to us through all of creation. You've revealed yourself to us through your written word and through the word, your son, Jesus. So Lord, help us to listen and to see today so that we might follow and love your son all the more. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Job chapter 14. How frail is humanity? How short is life? How full of trouble We blossom like a flower and then wither. Like a passing shadow, we quickly disappear. Must you keep an eye on such a frail creature and demand an accounting from me? Who who can bring purity out of an impure person? No one. You've decided the lengths of our lives. You know how many months we will live, and we're not given a minute longer. So, So leave us alone and... Let us rest. We are like hired hands, so let us finish our work in peace. Even a tree has more hope. If it's cut down, it'll sprout again and grow new branches, though its roots have grown old in the earth and its stump decays. At the scent of water, it will bud and sprout again like a new seedling. But when people die, their strength is gone. They breathe their last, and then where are they? As water evaporates from a lake and a river disappears in drought, people are laid to rest and do not rise again. Until the heavens are no more, they will not wake up nor be roused from their sleep. I wish you would hide me in the grave and forget me there until your anger has passed. But mark your calendar think of, to think of me again. Can the dead live again? If so, this would give me hope through all my years of struggle and I would eagerly await the release of death. You would call and I would answer and you would yearn for me your handiwork. For then you would guard my steps instead of watching my sins. My sins would be sealed in a pouch and you would cover my guilt. But instead, as mountains fall and crumble and as rocks fall from a cliff, As water wears away the stones and floods wash away the soil, so you destroy people's hope. You always overpower them and they pass from the scene. You disfigure them in death and send them away. They never know their children grow up in honor or if they sink into insignificance, they suffer painfully. Their life is full of trouble. My, Job does not end that chapter well, does he? 
sounds awfully hopeless. And yet, right there in the heart of this chapter, his theological imagination and reasoning springs to life with a thought. What if the dead rise again? How does he get there? So quickly this morning, I wanna do several things. One, I want to review where Job has already been. He's talked about life and death, and here he's continuing to philosophize at 30,000 feet. He's thinking about life in the midst of his suffering. And then also, I wanna talk about how life can only make sense in a certain kind of way for Job. And then lastly, I want us to turn towards answering a question, what if the dead did not rise? What would that kind of life look like in following Job's reasoning? And we'll jump to some of Paul's thoughts as well. So here we go. What are Job's thoughts about life and death? The words that we see in Job 14 are not new. We've heard them before. If you've been with us along this journey, let me just remind you, Job um, is a man who had incredible wealth. Um, He had an incredible family, um, and uh, he was tempted and tested by the adversary uh, with God's blessing, and all of his wealth was taken away, all of his children was taken away, and he experienced incredible pain and suffering in his um, health and disease that he took on. He was in a terrible, terrible position. In fact, I would say that Job probably experienced suffering to the degree that none of us have ever experienced suffering. All together, family, wealth, health, all gone. And it's out of that that Job begins to ask some profound questions about the nature of life and his own suffering. Why is he suffering? He has a lot of complaints to God. Job knows from the very beginning the source of this. God and his sovereignty and providence uh, has allowed or purposed this suffering in his life. The source of his suffering is the Lord. And so he has major questions to ask. I've done nothing wrong. I'm not deserving of this suffering. So he's suffering, he's hurting, he has questions, he has complaints towards God. And all along the way, he has his conversations with some friends who aren't helping at all. In fact, they're making matters worse. And then we find ourselves in Job 14. And so what is he saying about life? Let's do this quickly. The first thing that he says about life in the beginning of this chapter, he says it right from verse one, how frail is humanity, how short is life, how full of trouble, and he describes it in different ways, just how short life is. And so the first thing that Job would say is that life is brief. It's like a blade of grass. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. It's like a sneeze. It's just boom, it's gone. Life is brief. But he also reasons this, and one of the foundations of Job's thinking and pondering and philosophizing about life and in the midst of its own suffering is the foundation of this is life surely is not meant for this kind of suffering. Surely life is not meant to hurt and uh, to experience death and heartache and suffering in the way that he's experienced suffering. Surely life is intended for this to be lived like this, here today, gone tomorrow. 
And if, if life is full of suffering, like I'm experiencing suffering, Job thinks, then there's no room, there's no time to enjoy life because it's here today and gone tomorrow. In fact, in verses five and six, look what he says. He says, God, you have decided the length of our lives. You know how many months we'll live and we're not given a minute longer. This is what Job is saying. Lord, you know how short life is. You know exactly how long life is for every man and woman. Then don't inflict suffering on us. Let us live this life and enjoy it with the labor that you've given us. Life is too short to experience suffering. It's almost if, if Job is saying to God, God, don't take my short life for granted, right? If life is meant for more than suffering, don't you see my life is too short for all of this that I'm going through? It's kind of like, a plane that doesn't have enough runway to land. There's just simply not enough room. And that's what Job is saying. He says, Lord, there's just, there's not enough room in my life for all of this suffering and pain because life is just too short. Would you just, just back off a little bit? Would you just let me go on my way? Do you have to be this close to me? Do you have to inflict this kind of suffering? bring this kind of judgment against me. And in this scenario, death is not necessarily an out for Job. It is technically, but remember in previous chapters, Job would actually long for death, but that's not how he describes death here. Death is, is that miserable and inevitable brick wall that ends his life. That ends the opportunity and possibility of satisfaction, peace, and joy in life. Death is certain and it's hopeless. Verses seven through 12 really capture that for us. We don't, we're not like plants or, or a tree that can rebud. We just die and we're gone. Lord, can't you see that? Can't you see that my life is short? Can you remove your hand of suffering from me and judgment? Can I just, if I'm to know any sense of solace and peace and joy, then I need to have more runway. Job says there's not enough runway in life. It's too brief. Then he also begins to wonder. He starts to ponder a way forward. If life is intended for joy and peace and satisfaction, if that's the aim and purpose of life, and yet he finds his life under the burden of his own suffering, and he recognizes that the end of that suffering life and this brief life is death, then he begins to wonder, how, how is joy and satisfaction fulfilled in my life if it ends with death? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. And he begins to muse and use his theological and I would say holy and spirit-inspired mind to consider that if God is gonna be good on his promises and designed for this life, then something else has to happen. What does he ponder? Beginning in verse 13. He says, I wish you would hide me in the grave 
and forget me there until your anger has passed, until your judgment has passed. Would you forget me in the grave until your anger has passed? Just let me die, but mark your calendar to think again of me, to think of me again. So forget about me, let me die, but think of me again. In what way? Verse 14, can the dead live again? If so, this would give me hope through all my years and struggle, and I would eagerly await the release of death. So death now, with the idea that there might be resurrection of the dead, if the dead rise, if the dead can live again, then he's, he's, he's musing and wondering and reasoning, then death wouldn't be the brick wall because there would be new life on the other side of it. What kind of life would that be? You would call and I would answer and you would yearn for me your handiwork for then you would guard my steps instead of watching for my sins. My sins would be sealed in a pouch and you would cover my guilt. This is where his mind is going. Death is certain. It is the capstone on my insufferable and suffering life. But, but if the design of life is peace and joy, and satisfaction, and fellowship with God, then if God is gonna be good on that kind of promise and that kind of purpose and design for life, then something else has to give. Something has to happen. And the only way that he can see through his suffering is if when I die, there must be life again. Or he ponders the question, surely is there life after death? And notice how he describes the nature of this life after death that he has. Well, it's there in this life after death that my God would turn away from his judgment and wrath against me and would have renewed fellowship with me. It's a beautiful picture, beautiful picture that he has. You would yearn for me. This is verse 14. You would yearn for me, your handiwork. For then you would guard my, you would, you would guard my steps instead of watching for my sins. It's this picture of this renewed fellowship with God, which, which Job has been longing for from the very beginning, this renewed fellowship with God that has been taken away from him because of what he perceives as judgment and suffering. He says, I long for that day where you can walk with me again. Walk with me again, and I can walk with you again. And then he describes his forgiveness of sin. My sins would be sealed in a pouch and you would cover my guilt as he's thinking and reasoning about this resurrected kind of life, this new life after death, the promise of new life after death. He's reasoning that would be the kind of life where, God, you, you kind of take out my sin with all the trash and you throw it away and you cover my sin. It's a beautiful picture that Job is casting for himself as he reasons that the only way through this predicament of suffering and death is his own personal resurrection, where he would have renewed fellowship with God and where he would be forgiven of sin. Well, he's right. For Job, the only way this kind of faithful life, even in the midst of his suffering, the only way this kind of faithful life, seeking God, longing for God in the midst of suffering, makes sense is if there is something on the other side of it, namely forgiveness and reconciliation. It's the only way that kind of life makes sense for Job. 
Father, I'm trusting you as my only hope, and yet I'm suffering to the very end of my life. It only makes sense if there's something on the other side of it. Resurrection of the dead, forgiveness, and reconciliation. It wouldn't take much of us to get there either. If there were no resurrection from the dead, it would be like literally no light at the end of the tunnel. It would be like after working and mixing all the ingredients for a cake or a batch of cookies only to throw it all away once it comes out of the oven. Just doesn't make sense. It'd be like going through the hassle of an engagement and the preparing of a wedding but never getting married. No sense, that's what Job is saying. He's trying to, my life of suffering and faithfulness to God doesn't make sense unless God's gonna do something on the other side of my death. Job's right. None of, all, none of this makes sense, especially for followers of Jesus, if we just live and suffer and die, if there's no resurrection of the dead. And so that's where I want us to turn in these remaining minutes is talk about what does an unrisen faithful life look like for the one who is faithfully following hard after Jesus but there's no resurrection of the dead. What would that mean for us? And I'll be turning to 1 Corinthians 15 and then 1 Peter chapter one. Um, and I'm gonna be saying kind of the same things over and over again, more or less, just in several different ways. And I'm going to be doing in a similar pattern that Paul had to. There's this church in this Greek city called Corinth they had received the gospel. He had gone to them, preached the gospel. They had received it. They believed in Jesus and the gospel message that Jesus is the son of God, lived a life without sin, went to the cross, paying the penalty for our sin and rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin and death. That's the gospel that they had received. But somewhere along the way, someone began to teach them that, oh, the dead really don't come back to life. There is no resurrection of the dead. And so part of the reasons that Paul writes this letter to the church in Corinth is to correct that teaching, that false teaching that uh, they were receiving, that the dead indeed do not rise. And then Paul kind of works down some thoughts. Well, if the dead don't rise, this is what this means. And so that's what I want to do this morning briefly. So an unrisen faithful life. In other words, a life faithfully seeking after God but there's no resurrection of the dead is a defeated life. It is a defeated life. Death wins. If there's no resurrection of the dead, death is not peace or the end of suffering. It's the final result of suffering. It's the final nail in the coffin. It's the fulfillment of sin. For the wages of sin is death. If there's no resurrection, if there's no resurrected life, then death wins. That's where Paul goes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me just read these verses at the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 54. He says, when our, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. 57, but thank God, 
He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the grave. And so in Paul's mind is that we know victory over sin and death because of the resurrection of Jesus. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then we're defeated. Death has the victory. If there is no resurrection of the dead or an unrisen life, an unrisen faithful life is a hopeless life. Early on in that chapter, what does Paul reason in verses 16 through 19 of chapter 15? Remember, these people have bought the lie, at least several of them, that the dead in Christ do not rise. There is no resurrection of the dead. They're not necessarily denying Jesus's resurrection. They're just denying their own personal bodily resurrection, right? And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost, And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. And Paul's reasoning is this. If if you've put all of your life staking on the claim that Jesus has risen from the grave and yet there's no resurrection of the dead, then you're in fact hopeless. Uh, In fact, you're, you're you're putting your hope in a false promise. If there's no resurrection of the dead, these people have never met Jesus They'd never seen him in the flesh. And Jesus, Paul is saying that if there's no resurrection of the Jesus, no resurrection of the dead, then there's no resurrection of Jesus. And if there's no resurrection of Jesus, then you have no hope at all. Uh, you're putting your hope in a myth. An unrisen, faithful life where there is no resurrection of the dead is hopeless. It's a, it's a hopeless life. An unrisen, faithful life is purposeless. You often hear this phrase, I mean, it sounds wonderful, and in part, it's not completely untrue. You know, life is about the journey, not the destination. Paul would say otherwise. Paul would say otherwise. Now, I know what the phrase is meaning, that we need to capture every moment, not lose sight of what's happening around us, seize the day, but it couldn't be more wrong It sounds deeply meaningful, but if you never arrive, the journey is kind of pointless and purposeless, isn't it? If you never get to where you're going, if you never arrive, then it's purposeless. That's Paul's conclusion about his own life. Listen listen to these verses, verses 16 through 19 of chapter 15. He says this, if there is no resurrection of the dead, that's actually the wrong verse, let me go somewhere else. This is verse 30 of chapter 15, if you're following along with me. He says this about his own life, and why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? So he's posturing the question to the Corinthians who believe there's no resurrection of the dead. Why should we risk our lives all the time if there's no resurrection of the dead? Verse 31, for I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you and what value or what purpose was there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead and if there's no resurrection, let's feast and drink for tomorrow we die. What's, what's Paul arguing there? 
He's like, I've given my life to this message that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave and that the promise and fulfillment of our salvation is the resurrection of the dead. If that doesn't happen, then Jesus Christ doesn't raise from the grave. We're left in our sins and your life for the kingdom is absolutely pointless. If there is no bodily resurrection of the dead, Paul would tell you, and you're giving your life away for the cause of Christ, there's no resurrection of the dead, you're living a purposeless life. In fact, Paul would say, listen, I might as well just get up, go get drunk, party, be merry, and die. He's actually kind of repeating what Job said. Man, life is short. God, can you just, just distance yourself for a bit so I can just party, be merry, and do my work and die? There's no resurrection of the dead. We live purposeless lives. Finally, we live joyless lives. If there's no resurrection from the dead, if, if we are risen, we are living this unrisen, faithful life, it is a joyless life. First Peter chapter one, verse three, and then verses eight and nine. Peter says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now notice, Pete and Peter's theology, the anchor of the gospel truth is the resurrection of Jesus. Right, we are born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's verse three and then verse eight and nine. So hold on to that. Verse eight and nine says, um, he's talking to us. Well, he's talking to people that have never seen Jesus but put their faith in him and we fall into that category. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Peter is saying, listen, um, we rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ with inexpressible joy. But that kind of joy, that hope, hopeful joy in realizing the reward we have in Christ, anticipating the fulfillment of that reward in Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, that joy is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, if the dead do not rise, Job's right. If the dead don't rise, just mountain fall on me. Death is just a brick wall to end my suffering and for death to win. But we know that Christ indeed has risen from the grave. We know that there is victory over sin and death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can have victory, we can have joy, 
we can have purpose in life as followers of Jesus because he indeed rose from the grave. Church, the resurrection is the key to our faith. It's our anchor. It gives teeth to the death of Jesus, the Son of God. If, if Christ did not rise from the grave, then he would just be like any other historical person who died on a cross, albeit one who didn't sin. But it's in his resurrection that we find victory, that we find purpose, that we find joy in the gospel. And so without the historical resurrection of Jesus, we have no forgiveness, we have no reconciliation, we have no justice, we have no restoration of creation, we have no resurrection from the dead. In fact, echoing Paul, we would have nothing, but we have all of those things because Jesus rose from the grave. Victorious over sin and death. Just a closing thought before we move into our response time. One of the anchors for Paul's arguments for the resurrection of Jesus. Let's be honest, in a world in which we live, none of us have seen Jesus face to face. We have received in faith the testimony of the apostles through the word of God manifested to us through the power of the spirit of God. But I find it interesting that when Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he grounds it in history. He grounds it in history. That when Jesus Christ rose, his apostles saw, and then there were a handful of others, and then there were 500 people that saw him, and then even me, one untimely born, one not worthy to see the Christ, saw him with my own eyes. Why does Paul say that to a church far away from Jerusalem that's questioning the resurrection of the dead? For a variety of reasons, but one, Paul wants to ground the resurrection in real life, tangible history that Jesus bodily rose from the grave. And any one of those people could make their way to Jerusalem and ask any one of those 500 people if Paul's lying or not. How easily refutable Paul's claim was if it was grounded in history. Of course, he knew it was absolutely true. You could ask all those 500 people and all the apostles who gave their life for the cause of the gospel, banking on the reality that Jesus rose from the grave. You could ask any of them. None of them would have denied it. He wanted them, he wanted his argument for the, the resurrection of Jesus to be grounded in, in history because if it's absolutely true that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, then it changes everything. Everything. It changes how you think, it changes what you feel, it changes your purpose, it changes what you do, it changes how you think about your vocation, it changes how you think about parenting, it changes how you think about purpose and mission and life, it changes how you think about money, it changes everything. It changed everything for Paul's life and Paul is saying, if it's true for me that I saw the risen Christ and he changed all of my life, it is no less true for you that if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then it changes every single bit of your life too. First and foremostly, putting your faith in a risen Savior where you have forgiveness of sin and newness of life, ultimately fulfilled when Jesus Christ returns in our own personal and bodily resurrection as well.
We don't have to live as if we have nothing. We don't have to live life defeated or hopeless and purposeless and joyless because Christ rose from the grave. He said in Revelation, as the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and earth were descending, he said, behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, your word. Thank you mostly for the word, your son, Jesus, who died for our sin and rose victorious over sin and death just three days later. Lord, may our whole life and being revolve around that central truth of the gospel. That we don't worship a myth or a good idea, or, but we exalt a person, the Son of God who lived as we lived in the flesh. Even though he was tempted by everything, didn't sin one bit, and then even though he didn't deserve to die, he died. He died in the most horrific way possible because that's the kind of death we deserve in our rejection and rebellion against you. And, and then he was physically buried. And then three days later, Father, he, you rose him from the grave. Lord, may we, may we live and breathe and love and serve around that truth. And if there's someone here today who is not trusted in that truth of your son Jesus may they put their faith in him today in Jesus name we pray and all God's people said